and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show on the very last weekend of F1 Summer Break. How a loot. I looked at the calendar by a Thursday and we should start to have stuff to talk about again. Well, actually, I'm thinking Wednesday. But oh. Yeah, because the, the press conferences, you know, folks will start showing up to spa around Wednesday, Thursday. Press conferences will definitely start happening on Thursday. But I'm sure the teams are going to start mumbling stuff this week. Well, Monday-ish. Mumbling, yes. Yeah. But I am ready because this has been dull. And you and I have nothing else to talk about. And three weeks of summer is hard when we have nothing else to talk about. <laughs> okay. You know, before we got into Formula One, we found other things to talk about. And then? They, they did exist. We did, we did have them. I have suddenly forgotten all of those things. We have nothing to talk about. We watched a bad TV show last night called Hyperdrive. Okay, it looked promising. It did. It looked like it was going to be kind of cool. And, you know, what I thought it was going to be, remember a couple of years ago, there was, I think it was on like ABC, there was that show where um, basically they built this stunt course on, it was in, they built it on um, Grand Island, Detroit. Again, filmed at night. It was all kinds of challenges with these... Be they, they all drove uh, Crown Vicks. It was these beat-up old Crown Vicks that they went and did all kinds of... Weird and it was like a couple that they had to go through it, too. It was husband and wife were driving through all, all these different kind of driving challenges. I have no memory of this at all. I, but I'm sure our listening public all has memory of it. That was a pretty good show. Okay. I kind of hoped that this would be... And the, I think the big difference there, though, is that these were folks who had no real experience driving other than, hey, this looks kind of cool, let's try this. Where this hyperdrive thing was all... It was drifters and... Well, I think part of it is that the group of people that they have driving the course have all different skill levels. So you've got drifters that... Can well, do he, certain things, and then you've got like you've got some guy that drove in Formula Three. Formula Three, and he drove a big Mustang. Right. I mean, it it looked like it could be promising, but it and, and I think even they realized the way that show progressed after like the third person went through. Even they realized that yeah, th this did get kind of dull. We got to come up with some way to streamline how we present this because if folks had to sit and watch through these twelve people do the same course over and over and over. It wasn't going to work. Yeah, I, that was decidedly true. Um, and the commentators, they have four of them, which is obviously too, too many. And the only one who, who's who's good is Rutledge. And he can make anything boring, even the exciting stuff. He can, but he also can be hysterical. He was and, really good in Top Gear. He was. Yes, he can be good. He also made things. I will say he was the most lively participant of the commentating group because let me tell you, the guy from the UFC yeah. was useless. Like they don't have cars in that sport. So yeah, why are you the there? Was there? Um but yeah, it was weird. It was weird. So hyperdrive on Netflix, that that's a firm skip from us. Yeah. I, I think that's a firm Firm skip. Although paint jobs are kind of cool in a couple of the bars. Yeah, there were a couple of those that were cool. 
You know, what we have done in previous years that we have not done this year is we get to about this time of the year, summer break, and we shift our attention a little bit. And some of the reason why we shifted our attention was because we had Mid-Ohio nearby. Right. So we'd watch a little uh, IndyCar. We've done that this year. No. We didn't because we missed Mid-Ohio in our annual camping trip that's glamping. Yeah. I much prefer the glamping over the camping. And then I, I think just we've been kind of distracted. Well, that's a whole move thing. Yeah. I mean, we did pick up and change states. Yeah. And a lot, moved a lot of stuff. We have too much stuff. We need to get rid of everything. No. <laughs> anyway, so we met, we, we touched on it, the, I think it was the end of the show. No, it was the start. Well, we touched on it in the show last week. Whenever. <laughs> Some point during the show last week, we touched on the incident that occurred at Pocono. At the quote-unquote tricky triangle. Because it only has three turns. Wait a minute. They go to a track that has all of three turns. That's one of the things about Pocono. Is it's kind of an oval, but not really, because it's more of a triangle. It yeah. only has the three turns, so they call it the tricky triangle. And it has been known for having incidents in the past, as we've talked about. Uh, there was Wiccan's massive crash last year, which threw him up into the fence. And then last weekend, as we mentioned, another big crash that threw cars into the fence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had talked that Pocono seems to attract trouble, but we didn't want to make any comments. Well, as we heard more about what happened after last weekend's incident, it's gotten kind of interesting. And, and I'm starting to now agree with some of the calls that maybe Pocono's not the right place for IndyCar anymore. Or, for that matter, anything other than I don't know. Bicycles? Sprint cars, you know, some the, the dirt track racing kind of a thing that, you know. Maybe bicycles. Maybe. Electric so, scooters. One of the pictures that has gone around quite a bit lately is the repairs that were done after the incident last weekend. And shockingly, apparently, they were very similar to the photos that went around after Robert Wickens crash last year. And that was showing the crews as they were working to replace the holes in the fence. Now, I think last year it wasn't the repairs weren't as questionable. They they tore some massive parts of that fence apart and they ran out of fencing and they started to improvise last year. Okay. This year they didn't quite tear as many holes in the fence but it seems that they improvised right away in particular what they did now what a lot of these IndyCar tracks have is they've got this basically it's chain link catch fencing um, that goes up a good 8 to 10 feet above the road surface because IndyCar like many of the racing series have learned that um, you really don't want the debris from the cars flung off the track into the stands. That is poor form to hit the fans with car parts. Bad things happen. But the other the other big challenge, as we saw last year with Robert Wickens' crash, is that in order to have that catch fencing in place and to hold it and, and make sure it's got the resiliency it needs to catch, oh, an engine block moving at 200 miles an hour, um, they need some fairly substantial steel poles to support the fence. 
The downside of that being when you have an incident like Robert Wickens where a, the full car is thrown into the fence. Yeah, the fence keeps the car from going through the fence, but it doesn't keep the car from passing along the fence. In a Robert Wickens situation, um, he can't, his the structure of his car came to one of those big support poles, and that's where his big injury occurred. Mm-hmm. Well, thankfully that didn't happen last year. Or, or, or last week, thank you. Thankfully, that didn't happen last week. We didn't have a car get that deep into the fence. But they did get far enough into the fence that they tore some holes in. And the pictures that have been going around of the repairs this year, it seems that the management team at uh, Pocono didn't have any more fence left. So they seem to have decided that they would look for anything that kind of sort of looked almost like fencing, and they used a gate. Okay, so on the surface, a gate is made of chain link. I'm devil's advocating, do not give me okay. that look. Um, it looks like chain link. And, you know, if they turn around and they would taken that philosophy, of, you know what, there's chain link on this gate. Let's cut the clamps that hold the chain link to the frame of the gate and grab the chain link and use that and lash that up. Okay, fine. That's kind of what they did in, in some of the holes last year. And that make you, you know, you got to do something quick to get things going. And that works. No, they didn't do that. Oh, so they left the structure of the gate intact. Right. And... So big square gate with... The cross beams through it, so the, you know, the, normally you need to a gate is nice. They left all that in, so it stayed nice and rigid and strapped that to the fence. Okay, so we should back up and explain mm-hmm. that one of the reasons that they use the type of chain link that they do mm-hmm. is that they stretch it across broad poles so that it flexes and bends. Right, and so, there's cabling to keep it, yeah. All structurally good and all that kind of stuff. But the goal is giant car hit fence, fence bends, takes the impact. Mm-hmm. That's the concept. Not just to hold the debris back, but also to absorb the absorb, yeah. inertia. When you do something crazy, like take the structure that is rigid mm-hmm. from a gate and smack it up against a impact. Attenuating the, surface. Exactly. It doesn't attenuate nearly as much impact. It does not. Yeah. So there's a lot of outrage over that. And it seems that the problem at Pocono was a bit more widespread than this. And we didn't know about this history. And that's one of the reasons why there has been so much screaming in the last week that it's time for Pocono to go away. Uh-oh. Pocono no go. Um, apparently, Pocono. So, the the layout of the track and again makes it very tricky. That's why it's called the tricky triangle, especially in this area where this incident occurred. It tends to suck cars up towards that wall. The walls of Pocono, up until a couple of years ago, were concrete. And they still are concrete to some extent, but. What they've done, as is normal at a lot of race circuits now, is they put that impact attenuating tech probe 
in front of the wall. So that if somebody comes in, same thing over in Indianapolis. If you come in at high speed, some significant portion of your speed and the force of that impact is absorbed by the tech pro as opposed to being absorbed by you. That makes or your good car. sense. Pocono fought the installation of the tech pro there. Because they thought it was unsafe? They didn't want it. They didn't want to spend the money on it. Oh. They didn't want to spend the time on it. They didn't want to spend the effort on it. They did not want to put it in. That's not, that's not a good reason not to be safe. And then you have things like these shoddy patches of the, um, the fencing and things of that nature. And yeah, maybe Pocono's not the right place for IndyCar. So there is a rumbling that uh, VIR down in Richmond, Virginia is supposed to be returning to the calendar next year. Um, there is talk that possibly Pocono will drop off to make room for Richmond. There's some concern because I guess... Richmond is not known for great racing in general. Mm. Um, it's another oval. It's it's not a triangle. Um, but I guess IndyCar has been there before, and, and it wasn't a great race even for an oval race. Um, so there is concern that maybe Richmond may not be the right place. Plus, like Watkins Glen and some of the other circuits, even though it's Richmond, and I use air quotes there, it's like really far from Richmond. So it's not like Richmond adjacent. <laughs> It's like Richmond is in, well, it's in Virginia. <laughs> in the southern part. <laughs> you mean the closest major airport is Richmond, but that does yeah. not mean it's close to anything. It's like saying mid-Ohio is Columbus. I think that's the airport they fly into is Columbus, but it's still an hour, hour and a half away. Yeah. I mean, you have to live in mobile homes or RVs. Yeah. So we'll see what happens, but a lot of people are upset about the situation at Pocono last weekend. Um, and Takuma Sato, who caused that incident, is also getting a lot of grief for it. Um, so what happened was three wide going into turn three. Uh, it was Takuma Sato on the outside, uh, Alexander Rossi, and it was, and I don't remember, possibly James Hinchcliffe, uh, all the way on the inside. And Rossi was snuggled in the middle of the two. Rossi was in the middle. Sato came down across Rossi. Sato said that he couldn't see Rossi. He thought that he was clear and instead came right across the front of Rossi and that started a chain. Mm -hmm. um, Sato ended up upside down for his efforts, um, which bad in its own right. Um, Hinchcliffe, they said the only reason why he escaped major injury or any kind of injury is because IndyCar is using a new diverter on the front of the car specifically to catch debris like this because as we mentioned a couple of years ago the last death at IndyCar happened at Pocono now this wasn't an issue with the safety necessarily of Pocono this was flying debris mm -hmm. and this diverter was instituted in response to that situation and <clears throat> odds are Hinchcliffe was saved by that diverter yeah okay <clears throat> so my statement last week I will retract that it is not the champagne bathtubs at Pocono but possibly the Pocono Pocono <laughs> itself cheap yeah yeah um, so over to Formula One this week Formula One shared the 
first images of the proposed design for the 2021 cars, any 2021 rule set. What they did is they have been doing wind tunnel testing with a 50% scale model um, of a car with the proposed rule set. Uh, it's been the, the testing has been done at uh, Sauber's facility in Switzerland. Okay. Um, so it, it's the first chance that we have really gotten to get some idea of what this is going to look like. For the rule set that nobody has agreed to yet. Yeah. Let's just don't okay. get crazy. And, no, it's uh, not that. And decide that they've agreed to these crazy rules. They, they've agreed to some of it. So one of the things that we know that they have agreed to is they have agreed to the change in tires. Okay. We've known that that's been coming, that these are... 18-inch wheels, um, low-profile tires that are in thinner sidewalls, which means that the teams can't rely on the tires as they have been as part of the suspension. Correct. Or different to, it'll it'll exert different forces on the suspension. They can't use it to absorb it. But that that has been agreed to. We have seen that now on this car. Okay. Um, some of the other changes that that are showing up in here. Yes, we've seen the, the talked-about round effects and what that's going to look like, uh, but also uh, changes in the side pod design um, with the mouths of them looking a bit thinner, a bit not as pronounced as we have seen now. Um, none of the wings and fins and other appendages yeah. uh, around the, the floors. Very clean look in the floors. Um, you can't really see in, in what we've gotten so far the, the ground effects and how that's going to work. Um, but the front wing, very simpler, three elements that go straight across. Mm -hmm. That's it. It's not any weird curviness. Um, much simpler rear wing structure. In a lot of ways, um, the car is starting to look a bit more like the Indy car, the New Year's car. Um, not quite as much. The other thing that they're doing is there's a fairing that is going over the front wheels. Okay. Um, not a full fairing like you have on the Formula E cars. It's just over the tops. They don't completely understand what the, the purpose of that fairing is. Uh, but the one thing that they did say is that, you know, they were shooting on um, a reduction in the, the loss of downforce um, from following. Um, they were shooting somewhere between 40 or so, 45%. Um, and that's what they, they saw in the computational fluid dynamics. Okay. Testing they did. Now that they've shifted over to this 50% wind tunnel model, they said everything that they're seeing in the CFD calculations, it's actually manifesting itself. Oh. It is looking very much like... Um, and, and actually, I'm, I'm backwards there. What you're getting now is 45% is, is a loss of downforce. What they were shooting for is between 5 to 10% loss of downforce with the new design. Okay, that's good news. What they are seeing in the wind tunnel is exactly that, maybe 5 to 10%. Nice. Um, there is some theorization going on that if this rule set, as what we're seeing now, actually plays out, the unpredictability that we saw in Hockenheim could become a bit more common. Nice. Because of the fact that the teams can race so much closer together when you're only talking about 5 to 10%. Okay. 
That would be very cool. And there are specific, like the, the, the rear wing itself, there's specific designs, uh, changes that are being proposed in this that are actually intended to pull in some of that turbulence that the car generates and hold it closer to the car. Okay. Again, so that you don't have that dirty air behind the car and to actually have an impact on the the air behind the car so that it's not nearly as rough. So we'll, we'll see if this actually plans out. But it's looking good for the proposal. Well, you know what this is going to do. Ferrari's going to say, hey, we don't like it. No. Oh. But you're going to get to the Ferrari doesn't like it. Yeah. In just a minute. But let me just walk you through what's actually going to happen. So for the first two years, two, three years of the rule change, mm -hmm. the team that gets the engine right and gets the speed, this will have no effect on them. They will still dominate. They will be out in front. They will not be a part of the fray. Where you're going to see this initially happen and effect of racing is in the mid-pack. And then everybody's going to say, see, it didn't really work because we didn't have great racing at the front end of the field because they're not going to realize that the people that are in the front are the ones that got the engine right. Well. And until everybody starts catching up. I think it depends. And, and, and this is where I don't fully know because I haven't really dug into these regulations. And even if I did, I wouldn't understand it. Mm-hmm is exactly how much is uh, of this design is prescribed and how much the team still get to play with. Because there is some degree that they will get to play with. And, you know, Mercedes and Ferrari, there's a, you can probably bet that they're still going to be fairly close to each other. So if these cars aerodynamically are similar, it could be good bad. The same thing again, Alfa Romeo is running the same spec Ferrari engine. Williams is running the same Mercedes engine. It, it could pull those customer teams closer in because of that, depending on what the teams can do aerodynamically. And I don't know how, I mean, they're going to get some degree of freedom. I don't know how much. Well, that's going to be the question, but I caution everybody to remember back to the first couple of years of our new hybrid era. Mm -hmm. Mercedes got it right. Yeah. And they got it right on the engine. That engine was faster and better than anything else on the track. So just short of a reliability issue, which they didn't have, just short of that, they weren't, they weren't even driving the same race everyone else was driving. But we're not talking a major shift in the engine formula. Right. But they are talking about a shift. They're talking about a shift. And, and the question is whether or not they move away from the MGUH? MGUK? It's one of the two, obviously. Because you have an MGUH or an MGUK. One of the two there has been talk of going away from. And I don't think that there's been agreement on that yet. If you lose one of those components, that could result in a shift. But if those two components are there and the engine formula stays fam fairly similar to what it is today, mm -hmm. I think the engine becomes less of a factor. 
because as we've seen, everybody's getting closer to Mercedes the more time that they have. Exactly. So the engine may be less of a factor. That would be nice. Um, but while we're on the topic of standardizing designs and parts, Ferrari's not happy. They're not happy? Yeah. Why so, are they not Despite the fact that one of the teams on the grid has leveraged to the farthest extent possible getting parts from another team mm-hmm. um, and reusing whatever somebody else has done as much as they possibly can. Ferrari says that, you know, these standardized parts and do it, bringing in more standardization and allowing more of these... The, or, restricting the development of more of these parts, you know, that goes against the DNA of Formula One, and I'm not sure we like that. We're kind of against that. Yeah. I mean, I get it to some extent. I do. I mean, we want to see the teams push the boundaries, and we want to see them test, and we want to see them do new and innovative stuff. We want to see the six-wheel terror. We want to see the six wheel tiara. We again. want it. We want to see the fan car. We want to see these oddball designs that Formula One is blocking. But there's got to be some degree of reasonability there. Yeah. So, I mean, yes and no. Here's the thing: if Ferrari was bringing to the grid a six wheel tiara, or the ilk of that, mm-hmm. yeah, because they wouldn't bring it. It'd be a six-wheel Ferrari. Well, yeah, there, there would be that part. <laughs> they wouldn't bring another Terrell. <laughs> but if they were bringing to the grid something that was left field and mm-hmm. out-of-the-box thinking, and they were taking that kind of a risk, I could understand them being unhappy. But they're not. No. It, yeah. They're, they're not trying to go out on a limb. Well, no, they're not trying to go out on a limb. No. They are not going out on a limb, and therefore I don't understand exactly why they're so not happy about it. Anyway. Yeah. Matteo Bonotto says that we believe that first, the DNA of this sport is competition, and standardizing is somehow against this spirit. And because whatever you're doing standard doesn't mean that you're saving money because you need to re-engineer your car and your components towards a new component. And that has an impact as well on the commercial side. So I'm not sure that the balance is positive. And again, yeah, I kind of agree. Okay, yes, you need to engineer your car to the standard. But, so what? You have to engineer the car anyway. So whether you design it for the tailpipe with the left-hand bend instead of the right-hand bend, whoop-de-doo. <laughs> you still got to do it. I don't know. I this just talks up to me and the long, never-ending saga of things that don't make Ferrari happy because Ferrari aren't winning. I mean, I can understand if Formula One was going to turn around and go, you know what? Our standardized car in 2021 was going to have tank treads, but our standardized car in 2022 is going to be a bicycle. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> that I could see them going, yeah, you know that that kind of sucks. That you know, there's a big financial hit for us to go and re-engineer. That's not what's happening here. No. They're unhappy because they're not winning. And next thing you know, they're going to start writing letters. Yeah. So th this next one that, that Ferrari's unhappy about, Matteo Bonotto was unhappy about, I, I see where he's coming with this one. And this one, I don't have nearly as much heartburn with because I understand his point. So he, he, what he says is that um, the, the growth in the calendar that's being pushed um, and having more races combined with the push for a budget cap to limit costs poses a big risk for teams. Oh, yeah. And as a result, he's not sure he's, he supports that either. And I understand his logic here. So where his concern is, is that, you know, at 21 races, and, and he's not the only one to say this, they are really pushing the limits of what they can do with the staffing models that are in place. True. You know, it, it's a lot of time to turn around and tell mechanics 21 races, 21 weekends of the year, well, full weeks actually, plus testing, plus all these other things, you're gone. You are on the road. You are not home. You're, it, it's really hard to live a life that way. I mean, it's almost half the year. Plus well, the testing, plus all the other things, and it just eats up more time. So in order for them to move to 22 or even more races, and he's not the only one who said this, the teams really need to start looking at kind of like a shift system mm -hmm. of you have folks who go to some races but not other races and other folks. You know, the race engineers can't go to every race at that point and some of the other. Even the leadership folks, they need to look at some other options here. Where he's got a concern now is, well, okay, if we do that model, that's increased cost. In turn, plus, we have that many more places that we need to send our parts to, and the, tra the transportation cost for everything goes up. The cost of having more races go up. And then you throw a cost cap in on top of it. So our logistics costs have gone up, our cost cap has locked us in as to how much we can spend. The only option that we have at this point in order to continue to compete in that kind of an environment is we have to take away from development. We have to take away from some other areas. Right. That could potentially be a risk, and that could cause other problems. And, and I agree with him there. I, but again... The other thing is, well, yeah, that's kind of the reason why they're putting in the cost cap in the first place is because they don't want you to have that bottomless pit to just shovel money at to solve your problems. Well, they want you to get creative. Right. So here's where I think there's some things. Mm -hmm. One, there's a fixed cost, let's say. Mm-hmm. To for every team for a given race, just spitballing. Mm -hmm. Every team has got to have X number of employees that are present to do X number of jobs. Yep. No matter how many you actually have on staff that do that job, you have to have that for every single race. Mm -hmm. So let's just pretend for a second that it's, and I'm going with low numbers so my mental math can do this a thousand dollars fixed cost. 
per race. Every time you add a race, you're going to add $1,000 per team to their costs. Mm -hmm. Now, if you do not raise the cap a corresponding $1,000, then he's exactly right. You will have to cut costs from other things. But if the concept behind the cap says, we acknowledge that every race is going to cost every team X dollars, and we're figuring that your race cost is this, so that every time we add a race, we're going to add that money to the cost cap, then that undercuts his entire argument. There, there's another way you could completely undercut that argument. Okay. <laughs> cost cap is what it is. However, the cost cap only is an impact to your development costs. Only. How much money you can spend every year to develop the car and the parts and, and those pieces. That's where the cost cap comes into play. In order to keep the other piece from ballooning up to ridiculous levels, you then turn around and say, okay, you can swap out bodies however you need to in order to keep personnel tempo from killing people. However, you're only limited to X number of trackside support people. Mm -hmm. And you cap that. If you need to have a pool of 700 people so that you can make it through a season, that's fine. But you can only have 30 at the track at a time. And I think that that's another place that they should look at a capping system and, also. And, and they do have that. They, they've done that to some extent um, for the, the non-race specific folks. Um, you know, the marketing and hospitality. There have been caps put in place on some of those things. There are caps around that, but maybe that's the other answer is, okay, you know, you got to pay people. Mm -hmm. And we want you to be able to do that. Really where the cost that we're concerned about is the development cost and the fact that, you know, Mercedes can spend $400 million and Sauber can spend two. Right. And we want to balance that out. Well, <coughs> that's where... <coughs> That's where you look at putting the cost of the cap in, is specifically around the development piece. The, the devil's advocate argument is going to be that you would then have to define development really specifically because, remember, these mm -hmm. are teams that the yeah. edges of the rules is where they play. It's easier to say your entire budget has to be X yeah. because then there's no gray area. But you're right, that would be the way to undercut it, just like I said, is... We figure this is what it should cost you to do a race. We'll keep raising well, it. You know, the, the other way you get around that, though, is, okay, you're concerned about development. So you say staff salary, transportation costs, hospitality costs, marketing, those pieces are not part of, part of your cost. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you can you do it that way. You, you, you allow stuff that doesn't fall under the cost cap and say everything else falls under. Okay, I do want to talk about shifting okay. for personnel. Mm -hmm. Okay, in today's state, we have 21 races on the calendar. Mm -hmm. I am going to bet that of the, let's pretend, 30 people that show up to every race, and there's probably 50, but let's say that there's, there's 30. More than that, but yeah. Let's say that there's 100 people that show up for every race mm -hmm. per team. 
I'm assuming that not all 100 of those people go to 21 races in today's state. Because there's some races that are their home race and that they would have to have, you know, more hospitality people and yeah, maybe I mean, this group gets yeah. this or that. you, you got to assume that there's probably more people that go to the more support folks that go to the European races because of the motorhomes and, and the logistics around that. So, yeah, that is a possibility. So there is probably a I, I'm going with it. There's a core team of 30-ish people. Okay. Sure. Core team of 30-ish people. Those people have signed up for and committed to 21 weeks, race weeks out of the year, plus testing, plus, plus, whatever. Mm. Let's figure they are away from home half. They they truly travel 50% of the time of their life. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you were to go to a, a shift model at 22 races, the person, John, who is a pit crew guy for Sauber, has already signed up, and his salary is based currently on him going to 21 races. Mm-hmm. You shift him, he's suddenly got to split his his time. Now he's only going to go to 11 races. You are potentially looking at a salary cut for see, John. See, and I would bet you they wouldn't do that. And that's where they're going to have problems with instituting the shifting process. Is because until the tipping point gets such... That John's number of races doesn't go down mm-hmm. so that they can bring on Jim. But but even still, what they're going to do, and, and I would bet you McLaren and, and Mercedes and, and several of the other teams are already ready for this, op- this potential situation, is they're probably not even going to hire more folks. Because if you remember, several of these teams, if not all of these teams, have a separate support crew at the team factories for race weekends that are in live communications and are helping to support the trackside staff. That's one of the ways that the teams have gotten around the caps on the number of bodies that they can have at the track is that they go and they've got these live links. So what they will turn around and do so that they don't have the pay issues is peep on it. So for the races that he is not trackside with Lewis, he's back in England at the base. And the guy who's normally at the base back in the Bonington is trackside. I so they're still you. working the same number of weekends, but they get to go home that night instead of having to hop on a plane or pack up everything. And, and that may be the other piece of it is the fact that, okay, the week that you're not going trackside, you're not respond, you're not doing the logistics of setting up and breaking down that garage. You get to do nine to five at the factory as opposed to 12-hour shifts at the track. Well, and that sounds great. But you know there's going to be now a subset of the subset. So we had 100 people start. Now mm-hmm. we've got 30 people that go to every race currently. We're going to wind up shifting, doing shift work for some of that 30 people. There's going to be five of those people that are still going to have to be at every race. Because I assure you, when Lewis was in our studios, he said he would not drive unless he had Pete on the radio with him. And that wouldn't surprise me. And that was one of the things that I, I was wondering if the teams had to go to a shift situation, how they would deal with the race engineers. Because 
there's been so much talk about how close that race engineer bond is with the driver and how a driver would take having multiple races. I mean, we've seen it happen for a race every now and then. But is that really going to be as effective when they go half and half? Well, the thing is, you already have the drivers that would have to be at every race. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like they're going to go to a shift system on the drivers. Hey, there's four seats at... Monisha was ahead of her time. She put four bodies into two seats. Now there's four seats at every team. Look at that. We've solved the problem. But then you have a, a driver race engineer pairing, depending on how you split the, yeah, no, see, the season. I, the whole reason why the driver, drivers will race every single race, one is the points. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure they need to maximize the points and they're not going to want to give up their seat for it. But the number of drivers who were complaining a couple of years ago that it's too easy to drive the cars. Well, here you go. You drive it more and let's see how easy it is and shut up. Yeah. That's exactly what it would be. But so you're going to have a driver that shows up for every race. Their engineer that will show up for every race. And obviously the team principal. So you've got, I've just counted off your five people that will show up for every single race. You may not have the team principal. In Matteo Bonotto's scenario here, he actually says that um, they would be looking, even at the leadership level, to be able to rotate through. And as we have seen with several other teams, the team principal doesn't always go to every race. Christian Horner will go to every single Yeah, race. Christian Horner does, and there's some... But, like, totally. Claire, Claire has not gone to Claire every had race. a whole baby. Well, that's... Yeah, that, that's some <laughs> of it. She got married and had a baby. Um, there were times that Ferrari leadership was not all there. Well, <laughs> Literally <laughs> and figuratively. Yeah, physically and mentally, yeah. So there's, there's been that at times. Um, but we've seen teams have members of leadership not there. Okay. So. But even still, you're still going to wind up with a group of people that will, no matter how many races there are, are going to be at every race. Yeah. And then they're going to have to figure out, like, you know, talk about the pit crew. Do you rotate them in in halfsies? Or do you have a pit crew A and a pit crew B so that they're constantly working together with their same person? I mean, like... Yeah, that, and I think teams would play with that model to see what makes the most sense. I mean, how do you get that well-oiled machine but still have the flexibility? I mean, those are big questions that I think are valid test points for how you do this. I just don't think that Ferrari not being happy because it's going to bump into their ginormous cap is a reason to not explore these nuanced pieces of the strategy. Well, there, there's the other piece if you're Ferrari. There's the other thing that they don't want, they don't want anybody to think about. Watch this hand, but don't watch the other hand. Ferrari makes gobs of money gobs. from running in Formula Gobs. Dump trucks. Okay. So a cost cap comes in, and it says instead of spending eight dump trucks full of money, you can only spend two dump trucks full of money. Mm -hmm. They're still making ten dump trucks full of money, just like they were the previous season. The only difference is they can't spend as much of those 10 dump trucks full of money on Formula One development. They get to spend it on other crap. 
which will not lower the price of a Ferrari shirt. It, it won't, but I mean, it's not like they're going to lose money if a cap comes into place. No. They're still going to make a ton of money. And if anything, their profits will go up. Maybe they could spend some of that money to come up with a better name for a car than the Ferrari, the Ferrari. Well, I think they've come up with new Ferraris. Yeah, but in the grand scheme of things, could there have yeah, been a more stupid that was, name? That was pretty bad. So, you know what's a lot of fun? You know, I, a Ferrari? I, I love it when teams do this. When they turn around and they scream and yell that Formula One needs to do something. Whatever this thing is, this is what Formula One needs to do. And then Formula One goes and does it. And surprise, the teams don't necessarily see success. And then they go, we need to change this. And they go to everybody and they say, we need to change this thing that we just did. And the teams are like, the rest of the teams are like, yeah, we really don't want to do that. So they don't make the change, and then the team principal comes out and goes, we think this is a stupid idea that we're doing this, and we really should, and the fact that we're not changing it is really stupid. Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I need to just take a minute to understand all of the shifts of that, that scenario. <laughs> a team proposed a change. The change went into effect that the team wanted. Right. The team did not get the results that they wanted. And they wanted the, to change back. They want to revert. So they go to all the, the, the rest, because it has to be 70% or better, that says, hey, we're going to go back the way we were. And the other teams are like, yeah, we really don't want to do that. So they didn't get their way a second time. And then they turn around and go, well, the, you know, this change is really stupid. We never should do this. I and mean, we need to go back and can't believe that the system means we need 70% of people to go back to do the thing that we were doing before. And, and to, because we started this doing the thing, the thing that we wanted to do that didn't work out for us. Yeah. But it must have worked out for somebody else. That's why we didn't want, that we, they don't want to replace it. Yeah, pretty much. So what was the thing? So it was the change in the tires to the thinner gauge. Okay. Um, it was over heat-related issues and tire life and all that. And Ferrari was one of the ones. I don't think that they were necessarily one of the ones that pushed for the tire. I mean, they supported it and didn't really push for the change in the tire construction. But they certainly pushed for how the rule change happens. <laughs> And they want to go back to last year's spec tires because they're having problems with these tires in the thinner gauge. Mercedes figured it out. And oh, by the way, the reason why they wanted the thinner gauge tires is because they thought that Mercedes wouldn't be able to cope with them because they struggled with them last year. So, so Ferrari went to everybody and said, hey, we need to go back to last year's tires. We need a 70% agreement. And they didn't get it. And now they're like, well, this is really stupid that we needed the 70% to go back. And we're doing the wrong thing with the tires. And this is dumb. So Everyone's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, that's the new bumper for the show. <laughs> um, Ferrari, everyone's stupid. <laughs> okay, so Ferrari, who admittedly can't make a strategy call with two hands and a slide roll um, these days 
Well, maybe that's the problem, because everybody else is using computers. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly. So here's the thing. They can't win on the track. So now their strategy is to try to keep changing the rules so they can beat Mercedes. It's always been one of their... their, You know, they write a letter. They're going to write a letter. Hey, we heard somebody... We were just wondering if this thing that other people were doing that we were thinking of doing was going to be legal. So what do you think? (laughs) Can we go ahead and do this? Yeah. Exactly. Hey, in other news, there's going to be an American driving the Formula One car. No. Not a car. He's a current American, American, but not a current Formula One car. Uh, Yeah. No, um, Alfa Romeo development driver Juan Manuel Correra, yesterday, so we're recording on Sunday, this was Saturday, got his chance to drive a Sauber C32, which is a 2013 spec Sauber car. Uh, No word on what he did. Um, in terms of timing, uh, but uh, he was partnered. He, he actually he relieved uh, Tatiana Calderon, who's currently racing in Formula Two, also a uh, development driver for uh, Sal. Yeah, Alpha. Alpha. I, everyone's doing it. <laughs> Just because everyone. <laughs> Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Tatiana Calderon drove the C37 last year in Mexico City, and the session that was going on um, that allowed Juan Manuel to drive the car, uh, Tatiana was driving Friday, the same session. I didn't find out where this was because they didn't put that in the article. Okay. Um, So somewhere in the world... Yes. It happened. Yes. Okay. So, an American is testing in a Formula One car that's six years old? Well, again, remember... That's normal. That's... Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that 2013 C32 was the same car that was in Chicago. The one that kept broken down? Yeah, that not a Formula One driver couldn't drive. Well, you know, maybe (laughs) this not a Formula One driver could drive. I wonder if it's the same guy. No, it wouldn't be. This is the first time you've driven a Formula One car. Oh. So. Okay, so. Different, not a Formula One driver. <laughs> Different, not a one. All right. The actual Formula One driver, Daniel Ricciardo. Yeah, I was going to say, I see the picture of him on the screen. Yeah. Um, he is saying that uh, there's still a ways to go over and over. He said that they, they've made progress since he started. You know, the car's not blowing up nearly as much as it did last year when he was over at uh, Red Bull. Excellent. Um. It's not there yet. Um, and there's, st- he says there's still a long way to go um, before they are challenging for podiums in 2020, which is the team's goal. Okay. Um, I'm not sure that's necessarily a good thing if he's saying that there's still a long way to go before they're challenging for podiums. But that's what he's saying. Okay. But there's some other rumors that are all of a sudden in the last week swirling around right now. Ooh, swirling rumors. So, according to, um, well, I found the story at news.com.au, which is News Corp Australia. But they're saying that according to autobuild.de, which is a German magazine, who's actually 
fairly good at breaking Formula One news. They, they've got some good moles over at Autobild. Aren't they the ones that like broke the story that Bernie was so like ousted from Formula One? They may have. I don't remember. They broke some seriously big news. Autobuild has has had some good headlines. According to them, Esteban Ocon is on the verge of being signed to Renault. Esteban? Esteban Ocon. He would be taking, in theory, Nico Hulkenberg's seat. Well, that means that Valtteri would be safe at Mercedes. That, that's kind of what it sounded like. And, and I and, and I kind of think that makes sense. Because, yes, we think very highly of Esteban Ocon, but he, Esteban's only had, what, a year and a half fully in Formula One? That's pretty quick to put him up against Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes. It is. Um, yeah, it's not the same as George Russell, who's been in for not even a year yet, but still... That's really fast to bring him up into Mercedes and throw him at Lewis Hamilton. Um, I think there's a talent there, but that may be too much too fast. Um, Nico Hulkenberg's contract is up at the end of the season. But that's where the hitch is. Mm. So, according to Cyril Abitbull, what he has told... um, Auto Express or just Express in the UK? This just says Express. Yeah, express.co.uk. According to Cyril Abitbull, Nico's contract, the initial term, is coming to an end at the end of this year, but there is some mechanism of options, as has been commented on press, which I'm not going to disclose in the details, that can kick in. So it's maybe that we continue our journey with Nico. What that contract term appears to be is that there is something in Nico's contract that says that he cannot, even if he is out of contract, he cannot be replaced at Renault unless he has somewhere else to go in Formula One. How in the world did he get that line put in his contract? A really good manager. Wow. I mean, brilliant manager to pull that off for him. Um, so the other rumor that is now starting to fly around about Nico is, as we have mentioned, obviously folks are a bit upset over at Haas. Mm -hmm. And neither driver is necessarily fully performing up to expectations there right now. Um, but more so Roman than Kevin. So there is talk that potentially Nico could move to Haas and take Romance. Interesting. What I... The, the one thing that gives me pause is that we know that there is absolutely no love at all between Nico and Kevin Magnus. Yeah. Like, to the two of them cursing each other off at over the air at post-race interviews in the pen last year. Yeah. We will not replay this. Um, but, yeah, they, they, they are not anywhere close to buddies. 
So if the dynamic is bad right now between Roman and Kevin, I can't imagine it would get any better if you bring Nico Hulkenberg in. Well, and that's the question, is would the dynamic be better if, well, what I meant by the question would be, would it signal a full driver flop and switch at Haas? Would they walk away from Roman and K-Mag? Given that they're upset with him too, it, it could, I mean, that may be the, the thing that they're looking at is drop both of them. Now, who they would possibly bring in to take the other seat, I don't know. Um, Robert Kubica. <laughs> George Russell. No, I think George is staying put. Mm-hmm. And, and George is technically, much like Valtteri was, George is technically in the Mercedes program at this point. <clears throat> I don't think they're going to want to give up George. That would make some sense. Simon Patchett. You know, our, our list of folks to replace Roman Grosjean really doesn't change if we're talking about Kevin Magnussen. Sure. It's the same seat. <laughs> I don't know if I could be a good, you know, team driver with Hulkenberg. I'm so much shorter than he is. <laughs> so then we've got to mark you off just like we have to mark Kevin Magnussen off. I know. But Hulkenberg seems like a pretty cool guy. I don't know. I've always liked Hulkenberg. I See? really do. And the reality is, it doesn't matter in terms of the, the height pairing. There. I mean, they're different cars. As long as we don't have to share seats, that's important. But, and, and even that isn't, I mean, you, you look at WEC, the driver brings their own seat and puts it in the car. So even that wouldn't be a problem. True. True. Yeah. It's probably presets for the mirrors. They just hit the button and that adjusts and go. That'd be good. Be nice if my co-driver in my current car could respect the presets of that marriage. Anyway, I think you do it just to tick me off. Anyway, so we have me. So the list for a Haas seat at this point is me, Simon Pagano, Fernando Alonso, Fernando Alonso, Renus VK, Rance. We had somebody last week. Who did we add? Were we talking Stinger? No, we weren't talking Stinger. Saber. Saber. Saber's who you added last week. Saber. Because you don't think that Stinger is going to make the jump. No, he, he's been not very, not impressive. It would be nice if, you know, they would give a test drive to, uh, you know, the Blood and the Birds' favorite junior indie car driver. Robert McGinnis. It would be cool. Um, I, I think, well, from our conversations with them, they, their sights are set firmly on staying in the U.S. and pointing towards IndyCar and not looking towards Europe. Well, I have asked Gary about that in the past. Yeah. He because, thinks that, that that ship has sailed. Yeah. Well, it's also the money. Yeah. It's a significant money difference. Yeah. All right. So... Uh, Coda, Bobby Epstein over at Coda has been talking about um, the state of Formula One in general. Uh, the big thing of note is that he, he uh, has said that it is his intention that Coda will continue to host Formula One 
for as long as the track exists. Okay. He says, Coda is the home of Formula One in the United States. It is the only track that has ever been purpose-built for Formula One in the United States. Um, he even goes so far as to say that, you know, Indianapolis, yes, even if you take out the debacle of a few years ago with the tires, um, yes, Indianapolis hosted Formula One, but it is the home of the Indianapolis 500. It is not a purpose-built Formula One track. This is a Formula One track. Mm -hmm. And as such, Formula One belongs in Texas. Somebody is uh, drawing a line in the sand. and uh... He is. Um, but the fact that they are that determined and we're hearing, we want Formula One, Formula One is going to stay, is a whole lot better than, well, you know, if we can't get this escalator clause negotiated and get this contract in place, it's not happening. Um, I like that a whole lot better of, it's here, it belongs here, we're the place for it. Yeah. Um, he's lukewarm on a second race in the U.S. Um, a couple of concerns that he had. One was um, with Miami, because they were not initially talking about pairing it with Montreal, um, that would mean it would have to be on his half of the season. So there's concern about some cannibalism there between the two races. Uh, but also, as he says, Coda being purpose-built and designed for Formula One, it is iconic in that respect. Mm -hmm. And street races, while they can be iconic races, they typically aren't when you have them in a parking lot. They are never iconic in a parking lot. Right. And, of course, that's what they're talking about for Miami. And he's got some concerns there. Combined with the fact that if it's closely racked with his race, that it could be detrimental to both of them. And he thinks that Formula One needs to take a significant portion of the risk if something happens there. I think you're 100% correct, Mr. Epstein. And in our last story, because Fernando Alonso is not dead yet. No, because he's being considered for one of the houseboys seats. Well, there's that. But until then, to keep his racing skills up to date, um, he is actually continuing a partnership with Toyota Gazoo Racing. Now, they were the ones who put him in, in the WEC car to run Le Mans. Well, they've got other racing programs. Jensen Button was in was doing, I think it was Super Formula with Toyota Gazoo in Japan. Um, but they also have a Dakar rally team. Okay. And he's going to be driving in Dakar in 2020. So he's driven the truck at least once already. They're ramping up the, prep, the preparations for that. Uh, the event will be held in January. Oh, so it's not a confliction to his future Formula One season that he's going to come back for. It isn't. It's only potentially a conflict if he decides he wants to do Race of Champions or uh, the 24 Hours of Detail. Okay. Which he's done already. Mm-hmm. So, we'll, we'll see. Congratulations, Fernando, for having a drive. Yeah, I know you're excited by that. Um, you didn't hear that in my voice? <laughs> I'm excited, as excited about that as I am to see the next episode of Hyperdrive. Okay. Hey, to, to get off the complete now, and I know you, you have to have a, it's a free subscription, but you got to have a subscription to Autosport. They had a to read the article. They had a really good article um, looking at 
Sir Jackie Stewart and the fact that despite the fact that he only won three world championships, he is still very much relevant from a commercial perspective and from a racing perspective with all of the things that he does. Um, that he's managed to create this big empire marketing himself and his brand and everything that he stands for to the point that I think it was just last week uh, it was announced that he is like a, a title sponsor for a new uh, oh it's on is it Alzheimer's? There, you can't remember? Yeah, no, there, there's a research initiative around a disease that his wife Helen was just <clears throat> was just diagnosed with Mm -hmm. And he is backing that research initiative, and he was billed and announced as one of the you know the, the title folks who was assisting with that. And the the point being that you know he left racing back in the early seventies, and it's still a big deal that Sir Jackie's name is associated with it. Mm -hmm. And the question that was being asked of of the mo the recent Formula One drivers who possibly has anything close to that kind of staying power, Hamilton. Actually, the one that they talked about right now is David Coulthard. Interesting. Fellow Scotsman. Yeah. But that's not it. But it's the fact that um, he has managed, since, since stepping away, he's had a very firm presence um, in not just some safety campaigns, but obviously been doing some commentary. Um, his company that, that he started alongside Jake Humphreys, who initially he was commentating with in Formula One, uh, Whisper Films is one of the at the is now one of the biggest sports television production companies in the United Kingdom. Wow! And they're only about six years old, mm -hmm. and they're and multi award winning, multi disciplines. He's a major backer in the W series. He's a brand ambassador for Red Bull and frequently goes out and does stuff for them. He is still, even though he is not racing, a very big draw. And surprise, he has been mentored by Sir Jackie in how to have a life post his race career. Well, I mean, honestly, nobody did it better than Jackie. And yeah. if you were going to have somebody to mentor you, you'd want Sir Jackie to do that. He did transition out of the car and into his next role in a beautiful mm -hmm. way. Absolutely beautiful. And, of course, it does help that his platform, like what Jackie Stewart will be known for for the rest of time, is less about his racing. I mean, yeah, three-time world champion gets listed, but it's his safety. It's his yeah. safety record. You step up to save lives, you're going to live on for a lot longer than just winning races. Well, it, it was the saving lives and then everything he did. Beyond that, mm -hmm. I mean, worked very closely with Ford. He's been a Rolex brand ambassador since the 60s. It doesn't surprise me. The only one who came close to him in terms of uh, staying power as a brand ambassador with Rolex was Jack Nicholas, mm -hmm. who was signed the same year. Oh, wow. It was a good year for Rolex. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the other thing about Sir Jackie that always sticks with me. His pants? And matching hat, <laughs> yes. And it, that's the thing. That must be the key to their success. Cothard and Jackie have unique pants. Wow. 
You went there. I didn't. Wow. No, what I was going to say is Jackie came up in an era of racing where it was still the Playboy racer. Mm-hmm. You know, the and he was. Really. Yes, he was married, but he was still known as um, somebody who enjoyed his life. I'll put it that way. He's a very understanding one. But Helen was there Mm -hmm. for so very much of it and is still there. Yeah. How many of those Playboy racers are still married to the woman that was beside them through all of that? But for many of them, they weren't even married during those years. Mm, True. I mean, Damon Hill was, but a lot of them weren't. It's just, it, it's notable because when Jackie talks about the, the that deadly year where they mm-hmm. were going to a funeral almost every week. But he talked about him hanging out with Jim Clark and his wife and they were inseparable. And, and But the statement that he says all the time is, Helen and I went to so-and-so's mm-hmm. funeral. Helen and I went to so-and-so's. Yeah. She was there beside him through all of that. And... You can't dismiss that as being a very steadying feature to his life. Yeah. To have such consistency. Yeah. I'm just reminding you that, you know, when you have life, you start thinking about life post-podcast and your fame. Oh, what's that? (laughs) Get unique (laughs) pants and keep your wife. That's important. (laughs) Rules here. And on that piece of advice, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay. Whew.